I think that's what is so damaging about the neoliberal narrative is by framing teachers or workers or people as as disposable that takes out the the human and it it dehumanizes teachers and it helps organizations like TFA make the case for not needing a rationale for teaching decisions or for for practice but to just go through the motions and adopt this framework and this is what good teaching means and to take yourself out of that. Although it wasn't guilt, it was, they all experienced sadness, the sense of loss. Welcome to episode 23 of the Truth for America podcast. I'm Julian Vasquez Heilig, one of your hosts, and we have an exciting episode for you today. We are going to talk about prestige. So often I hear, and other folks hear, that uh, Teach for America core members choose Teach for America because of the prestige that comes with being a core member. But the question is, is that prestige that lasts? Uh, does it persist? Is it earned? So today we have our co-host with us. Jameson Brewer. I'm an assistant professor of social foundations of education at the University of North Georgia, and I'm a 2010 Metro Atlanta TFA core member. And hello, my name is Barbara Veltry. I am a, an associate professor at Northern Arizona University, and I have um, studied Teach for America for 20 years. And our guest today is Angie Kramer Holland, and she is a educational researcher and has written several articles about Teach for America. Angie? Hi, thank you for having me. We're so glad to uh, have you on to talk about some of your past research. So Angie, you know, there's a select group of folks in the United States that do work on, on Teach for America. So I was just really interested when a news release came across my email about this uh, new study uh, that you had come out. What what really inspired you to study uh, Teach for America and your dissertation and these two recent studies? Sure. So bear with me. It's a bit of a long-winded answer. So I got my undergraduate degree at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in secondary English education and Spanish. And at the time, UW had a two-year program where there was one year of observations or clinicals practicum and one year of student teaching. In the second year of my program, I went to a job fair and there was a booth for Teach for America. And I knew that I wanted to move out of Wisconsin once I graduated. And so when I heard the TFA shtick from, from the person at the booth, I thought, this is exactly what I want to do. I should just quit school right now. I can just graduate with an English degree and do Teach for America, and I'll be able to teach and teach where I want. And I remember going out to dinner with my mother, and I told her about it and my idea of possibly 
leaving school and doing Teach for America. And her response to me was, if it's too good to be true, then it probably is. And so I chose to stay in the program at UW. I graduated in 2010. And I came to Chicago and I did a residency program for a master's degree. And it was an alternative pathway. And that sort of raised its own issues in terms of what I had learned in my program and what I was experiencing as a teacher in Chicago. And when I started working at a school on the north side of Chicago, there was a Teach for America co uh, co-worker of mine who was doing TFA. It seemed apparent that she and I had similar language in how we spoke about teaching and how we spoke about students. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. And it wasn't until 2012 that I ended up in a public high school in Chicago that had a very strong union presence that I realized, and this sort of dovetailed nicely with the Chicago teacher strike in 2012, which I participated in, it was then that I realized that some of the issues I was experiencing as a teacher were bigger than me and bigger than where I was teaching, bigger than Chicago. And I couldn't name some of those issues. I couldn't name some of the problems that I was experiencing, but I felt for a few years afterward, and I ended up leaving teaching in 2015. And it wasn't until... 2016, that my dissertation advisor asked me to read David Harvey's A Brief History of Neoliberalism. And although it doesn't talk about education at the beginning, it opened up the floodgates, so to speak, where I began to see some connections between what I was experiencing as a teacher, what I was what I had been experiencing as a teacher, what I thought Chicago had been experiencing as a bit of a poster city for neoliberal reform, especially in education, and what I thought the teaching profession was experiencing nationally, not just in Chicago. And my interest in researching TFA came from my experience as a teacher who, in my, in my view, did the traditional route, spent a lot of time researching, doing you know, pedagogical courses, methods courses, and still feeling a little bit of a, a, a lack of power, a lack of autonomy. And I came back to that conversation that I had with my mother so many years ago and wondered if participants who had done TFA experienced those same kinds of ideological conflicts or personal, personal conflicts in their teaching and what they thought teaching should be, what they thought it could be, and maybe finding out what it wasn't. And so that's how I became interested in researching TFA. I made it there. You know, I find that fascinating because in the last episode, we taught, we were talking about Detroit and one of the uh, TFA alumni talked about how going into TFA, he wasn't aware of any of that history. He wasn't aware of sort of the neoliberal history related to education reform and school choice and those types of things. He wasn't aware of the context of the situation he was going into city of Detroit. Um, and he wasn't aware of the role of Teach for America 
with charter schools, with um, testing, with other aspects of the corporate education reform movement. But it sounds like because you went through this more traditional path and had a, you know, a, a liberal, so to say, education, you, you, you had all of that context. And one of the interesting things is Jameson and I actually wrote about that 2012 teacher strike uh, mm-hmm. in an article with uh, m- with Michelle Gunderson and and Jitu Brown uh, mm-hmm. years ago in the thresholds for uh, an education journal. I think it was called uh, Chai Town Educator and Community Based Activism, and we linked together what was happening with that teacher strike. Teach for America and broader themes of private management and and privatization in that piece, along with social justice unionism. And I I think one of the interesting aspects of Teach for America that's always puzzled me is their hostility towards sort of the recognition of these ties to neoliberalism, the ties to anti-unionism. Did you discover, it it looks like you did a lot of interviews in your new piece uh, that just came out. And I think it's in the Action and Teacher Education Journal. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Um, So when you interviewed folks, what are some of those things that just really stuck with you about their experiences and what they did and did not know? What I found to be surprising was that the majority of participants wanted to teach indefinitely, and they sought Teach for America as a pathway to doing something, pursuing a career that they found to be meaningful. Wow. And what surprised me and something that I had to check as, as a researcher was this assumption that every person who sought out Teach for America did so because they wanted to teach for a finite period of time. And the population of participants that I have, the majority of them did not want that. They wanted to be part of the teaching profession. I remember one of the research participants just noting they wanted a salary and a teaching job and that Teach for America was what they found to be the easiest, the most feasible, but then also the most seemingly prestigious way of going about finding a teaching job. That's interesting. That's counter to the narrative that we typically hear that, you know, this is a short-term thing that they're doing on the way to, to something else. I remember when uh, Assemblymember Garcia in California, we talked about in a prior episode, had filed a bill uh, to ban Teach for America in high poverty schools. That the legislators, the legislature's uh, research arm had found that less than 30% of TFA actually stayed in the profession. So do we know, so they, it sounds like they indicated that they wanted to stay do you know if they ended up staying or were they discouraged or do you do you know any of that at this point? What was nice about the format that I took is, and this just happened by chance, that the participants I interviewed, none of them were classroom teachers. And so none of them stayed in the profession. One of the participants was a bit of an anomaly. They had a teaching degree prior to joining Teach for America. Mm-hmm. And they pursued TFA because they wanted to teach in a particular location. And so when they got that preferred location and they finished the program, they wanted to stay in the classroom and they did. However, they were encouraged to think about starting their own school, 
finding a position within TFA, doing something in leadership, something for the district. And the decision to stay in the classroom was poo-pooed in a way because it, it seemed to her that was not, that was not enough. Interesting. So they, they all intended to stay in the classroom in your sample, but by the time you interviewed them, they'd all moved on to other, other things. It was a mixed bag. So one did stay in the classroom. One person, and this participant was the only person who viewed their teaching experience as temporary. Their goal was to go to law school and do policy. And this was the best route to do something in between graduation and law school. The other participants, some of them stayed on for a third year in teaching. And they found that their strategies, teaching strategies that they had learned in TFA did not work with particular student populations. And one of them described it as a culture shock. There was a significant disconnect between how they wanted to manage a classroom and how students were responding to it. Could you be be specific on that? Because, you know, Amber Kim and myself and Jameson Brewer did recently write a piece for um, an ARA handbook uh, that Travis Bristol is leading. And we we talked a little bit about this. Could you could you tell uh, the audience uh, what, what folks were telling you, what these TFA alums were telling you? Sure. So one of the participants mentioned that they had taught for their first two years in um, charter schools that were, one of them was run by a TFA alum, one of them was not. And their third year, they ended up in a charter school that they framed as a last ditch effort for students. And they noted among other among other things a bit of a white savior complex. The student population was predominantly African American, the teaching staff, the administrators were predominantly Caucasian, and the strategies that she was implementing were not being supported and students were not responding to the management strategies that she was trying to implement. She did some observations of other teachers and she said this other teacher had snaps and call and response techniques. And her response was, I cannot commit to what feels fake. And certain things didn't resonate. And she felt extremely, you know, disempowered. And she, I remember her telling me that she called her program director from, I think her first year of TFA and asked for help. How, how can I get out of this? How, what do I need to do? What do I need to implement? And their response to her was kind of just figure it out. You're, you're not doing what you need to be doing, figure it out a different way, do something else. And this person was experiencing personal, psychological, emotional trauma. And they weren't sad. She, you know, she wasn't satisfied with that answer. And so she thought, you know, as, as a way to preserve my well-being, I can't stay in this profession. So I have two questions for the co-host. I, I think one for Jameson, you back in 2010, uh, you were in TFA. That's almost a decade ago. Do these strategies sound like what they were talking about 10 years ago? 
effectively, it's the exact same thing that I saw, both as an incoming core member as well as working at Institute staff in 2011. Um, and what Angie was talking about in terms of uh, uh, core members snapping their fingers or whatever it might be, uh, there were a lot of core members uh, through Lee Cantor's assertive discipline, classroom management technique, you know, that often gets used in a lot of KIPP schools. Um, core members would use, uh, uh, I guess you would call them a dog clicker. Basically, it's just a piece of bent metal inside of a plastic casing and you click it. And th these are the things that uh, pet trainers will use to get the attention of a dog uh, before they're given a command to do a trick or whatever it might be. Especially the uh, training or using uh, devices that are designed for training animals. Uh, and then also in thinking about what Angie said, uh, when core members struggle, if the answer from TFA is, uh, if what we're teaching you is not working, just go figure it out. That's problematic. And I think that, at least for me, and I would hope for uh, listeners, that if you hear about teachers using a device that is specifically designed to train animals, uh, using that in the classroom with children, it should raise some significant questions about what this means, what this type of teaching means for the humanization of students. Barb, I want to ask you a question here too. You know, right at the end, Angie was talking about how in her third year, she's the respondent's working in a charter school and she's starting to have, she's having emotional challenges. And in some of these other episodes, we've heard that. I think about the special education teachers in Oakland. I think about um, uh, some of the other internalizing that these core members do. Is, is that something in your research and working with core members as a teacher educator, do the core members internalize this failure because the practices that they've been taught by Teach for America, does it, does, is it a challenge for their mental health? Is that, is that what you've heard too? There's been a lot of mental health concerns, whether it was even the episode with the early childhood teachers in the New York area, um, where they absolutely saw things that were unsanitary, yet they were told to go forward anyway. I mean, I, one of the things that Angie brings out is the fact that the um, people who apply to TFA, who go to the job fairs, they're seeing a very polished uh, PR um, media driven marketing program that focuses on leadership. And the big disconnect is that we are othering teachers. We are Teach for America and they are teachers. And if you look at any of the research literature on how teachers develop, you would know that even David Berliner talks about you are an apprentice in your third year. You are considered still a novice. And so normally you would have teachers who would be able to go and ask veteran teachers at their school for help because they have been through it. They would know maybe how to diffuse a situation. But instead you have rookies who have had a five week compressed training that leaves them very, you know, very emotionally drained anyway. It's very intense. It's, it's like um, boot camp on steroids. And then what, what happens is they're going into classrooms and they're only hearing, you know, it's like that echo chamber of their own voices, their own, um, you know, program directors, their own executive directors. They're getting countless emails 
um, how are we uh, assessing? We need to have these benchmarks. And that data is, is supposed to be driving their instruction. I have heard that they have fudged the data or outright, you know, presented data that was not accurate, not even reliable. And what happens is there's such a peer pressure that I've seen in my research where you feel less than. These are people that have always been high achievers. These are people that always did well. They were leaders in their campus. They did study abroad. They speak different languages. They were able to figure it out. They were able in some respects to be the one person in their family to go through college and, and finish. And now they were asked to adhere to a certain mindset, which is really part of the TFA indoctrination. It is the TFA way. And that way is the way, is the way that TFA goes and commodifies the recruits and the core members so that they can get financial support from donors and foundations and from governors. I mean, even in Arizona with the CARES Act, our governors put money into Teach for America. That's the kind of financial support that they're getting based on their reputation, their PR, and some people could say their propaganda. So uh, in thinking about this with Angie's work, uh, and particularly is what Barbara shared in terms of the recruitment mechanisms that TFA uses. Previously, you said that the majority of your uh, participants in your study expressed a desire to be in teaching long-term. And of course, you, you shared that that didn't play out and, and we can have continue to have a conversation as to why that, that likely didn't. It could be a lot of these emotional uh, issues of baggage that, that Barb just shared. But you said that a lot of them had chosen to enter not just teaching, but interteaching through TFA because they uh, somehow understood that to be sort of a, a prestigious entry. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about uh, what it is from, from the, the perspectives of your uh, interviewees, why they felt that entering into teaching through TFA, uh, this sort of fast entry, you know, two and a half days of student teaching uh, was prestigious as compared to, you know, what we might understand to be a full traditional training program. Sure. So there were a couple of reasons. And one, um, one to, to quote one of my research participants, positive media coverage at the time that they entered TFA or were thinking about entering TFA, there was a lot of media coverage and notoriety around TFA and what it meant. And the other reasons participants thought about and chose to enter teaching through TFA involved what they believed to be some issues that plague teaching as a profession. And one of them, they believe to be low pay. The other, they believe to be minimal respect. And that's how they praised these issues that they thought TFA would alleviate instead of entering teaching through a university-based program. Teach for America provided loan forgiveness, provided a salary. It was quick. And they could be doing work right out of the gate that was meaningful. And at the time, they also thought that TFA's mission as an organization was seductive. It was 
centered around social justice and educational inequity, and we're going to solve it. And those were the primary reasons that participants sought out TFA instead of a traditional teacher preparation or teacher education program, rather. So they felt that way. What what did they actually find on those fronts? Like, what did they what did they tell you about it? That it turned out not to be the case. They found that the mission to solve educational inequity was looming significantly larger than TFA itself, and that schools and TFA cannot do that alone. One of the participants. He was actually released from TFA after his first year. His interviews were particularly interesting. He, at his institute, found it surprising that there was a significant amount of what he called corporatized or corporate language. He called it making nouns verbs. And that emerged not just in his institute, but in how his program director framed classroom management, the professional development that they had as a cohort throughout the school year. It came up again and again, and he noticed a significant disconnect between this kind of narrow framing of teaching and, you know, very data-driven, very data-heavy teaching practices and philosophies with this social justice mission. And he couldn't seem to see the connection and the extent to which there was any sort of social, socially just teaching philosophy that, that TFA was communicating to its core members. That's profound. I I think that's the first time in this podcast that one of the guests has just simply said there's no connection with the way they approach the classroom and a social justice mission. Uh, That's really profound. It's interesting that he, you say he was released. You know, we've talked about, uh, you know, in our recent ethnography piece, uh, digital ethnography piece about the podcast uh, in the journal Verbant Education. We talked about how TFA really does not like calls for reform of their organization. They 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 push back and uh, in in many different ways. Um, was he let go because he was thinking critically about what was happening in TFA? What 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 did they say was the reason? I tried as a former classroom teacher, I tried not to, as as much as I could, get involved and you know think about the sort of personal decisions that Mm -hmm. participants made to leave the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I found his story to be, I don't want to say heartbreaking, but disappointing. Mm -hmm. So his institute experience involved teaching middle school social studies, although he was supposed to be teaching high school math in the fall. And when he tried to advocate for himself and say, well, this doesn't seem right, the TFA staff said, oh, it's fine. It'll, it'll translate. And so he spent his institute experience learning strategies for a middle school social studies classroom. And when he was assigned his teaching post, He had about two weeks to prepare his math curriculum, and 
try as he might, he thought that he would be coming into teaching and students would be excited to learn math and they'd hang out and he would serve as an intellectual mentor is what he called it. And classroom management seemed to be a bit of an albatross for him. And his program director came out, I think once, maybe twice, to observe him and offered a very complicated system for how to manage students that involved a lot of checks and grouping. And it was hard for him to figure out and to implement. And so he was called into his principal's office and it became very apparent to him very quickly that things were not working. And so he made an effort to go to uh, classroom management, PD, offsite, and came back and was ready to implement some new strategies. And he wasn't supported. And a few months before the end of the school year, they notified him that he would not be coming back. And he wanted to remain in teaching. He wanted to remain in TFA. And he asked his program director, is there a way that I can move to a different school? And the program director said, well, haven't you made friends here? And this participant thought, okay, well, maybe this isn't for me. Was he a math teacher? Like by training, he he had a math degree. Um, so he had a math background. Is, yes. is, I'm sorry. That's really interesting, right? Because there's this conversation about how Teacher America is going to fill needs in shortage areas. Of course, STEM is one of those persistent shortage areas that we have. So here you have someone with a math background that wants to teach math and they train him to be a social studies teacher in the summer. Here, here's what flummoxes me is so often you run into TFA proponents and they talk about, and oftentimes they'll say that they were excellent teachers right from the get go. To me, that's always difficult to believe. But why these kinds of conversations don't rise to the top in the public discourse, which is that TFA saying we're going to meet a shortage area, but yet they're going to train them as a social studies teacher. That is an incredible mystery to me. Why organizationally they would approach it that way. Jameson. I think this has always been their approach. I know that uh, when I was coming into the course, I had a, um, a, degree and a license, and I was trained and did student teaching for social studies, but TFA brought me on to teach a special education elementary school, and uh, during my institute training, I was teaching seventh grade math, and the entire approach for TFA, and of course, uh, this is also uh, exhibited in, in how they do geographic institutes because at my institute the first year uh, the Hawaii core was there I think the Nashville core and this is all in uh, the city of Atlanta uh, because TFA's approach much like the dog clicker uh, is that all students learn the exact same way regardless of the content regardless of their background regardless of the geographic region it's it is uh, boiled down to recipe for teaching. And if it doesn't work, uh, then it's the core member who's at fault. Wow. 
I would just like to add that if Teach for America really wanted to address the needs um, that core members have been vocal about over years, they would the first thing they would be addressing is teaching out of field. I mean, we have people that say these are my preferences to teach math. We say that we have a shortage of math teachers. But what happens is the Teach for America has such a programmatic, sort of a corporate uh, mindset that this is our way of. Um, you know, inboarding, and, and you're going to follow it. And so if you happen to go to Institute, and we have opportunities to teach for a few hours a day for two weeks, in a team teaching setup, that's, that's counts as your practicum. And so, you know, they, they are then setting up the core members for failure and going back to the emotional piece before, if you're going and you're feeling that you have to start from zero, because you have spent all this time during institute teaching another grade level subject area, you're at a deficit already. And in Jameson, Jameson and I, our piece was published in 2020 in Education and Urban Society. We talked about the, um, the characteristics of good core members. And the first one is that you comply. The second is that you embrace. And then the third one is that you cope. And so many of them are just coping to get by, maybe throughout their two years. But then there are those that um, negotiate or counter crusade. And then what happens is once you say that this isn't working, can you help me? Or maybe I could move somewhere else. You know, TFA has such a network where they document everything that anybody says. And so it makes it very difficult for people that have any challenges to be able to have those addressed in a way that you would have addressed in, in any organization in, in a productive manner. And so what happens is they end up subverting. And then the final response is that they escape. I did have a question um, about your, your subjects. It seemed as if you said that two were from elite uh, families of origin and others were from working class. Can you tell us a little bit more about what attracted those who were from elite families to join TFA? Because they tend to have a safety net regardless of whether they stay or whether they move on either before or after their two-year commitment is up. Sure. So one of the participants, they relayed to me, they remember talking to their parents about possibly pursuing TFA. And although their parents um, didn't support it, they did feel like, okay, maybe this is something to get out of one system. It's temporary. We'll do it for a little bit and move on. So they didn't support it because it was teaching or they didn't support it because it was TFA? Because it was teaching. Wow. The other participant who also came from an elite background recalled that there were no teachers in their community. The white collar adults in in their community were doctors, lawyers, and politicians. And teaching was not something that was a respected or desirable career. And this person, she felt as though, well, in order to do policy, in order to go to law school and to do what I want to do, 
this is a way to build what she called an incredibly solid resume. And so she was the only participant who saw teaching as something temporary. She did mention that there were times that she did consider possibly staying in teaching, but there were some management leadership issues at her school that put her off and did not motivate her to to stay in teaching. Angie, if I might follow up, it just goes to show that you said it before, every one of your participants is no longer teaching. Correct. So what we have is the prestige to join TFA and then the expectation for you to leave. And so what that does is they're bringing in this revolving core in the urban core because most of the children where TFA is sending core members into communities in urban and rural areas of children who are living in poverty. And there's no way that they're going to get the benefit of local veteran educators. I mean, look at what happened in New Orleans. And then there's the reality is you might have siblings that are going to have Teach for America teachers for their entire career, novice, first and second year, over the entire lifetime of children in a family. And of course, New Orleans being the situation where after Katrina, Mm-hmm. They came in and replaced primarily teachers of color with primarily young white teachers to charterize the vast majority of the public schools uh, in that city, which is part of the bigger neoliberal project. So let me move a little bit to that. Um, both your dissertation and this article address this sort of neoliberal project, which is essentially the privatization and private management of, of education. So, you know, what is your thinking right now about Teacher America and neoliberalism? Sure. So I read a, um, a piece by Stephen Ball, and he phrased it as what is particularly insidious about neoliberalism is that it's not just out there in terms of economic policy and political policy. The work happens in here, in the head and the heart. And what I found to be troubling on both fronts is from an organizational standpoint, it seemed as though TFA is treating its core members and teachers in general as disposable and as a disposable temporary worker. And that is that is very neoliberal in framing teaching as a temporary pursuit. But what was also troubling and is is still troubling to me is the fact that part of being an agreeable core member, as one of my participants called it, is adapting the TFA way and the TFA framework for teaching. And so that is not work that happens out there in terms of the broader teaching profession and cycling teachers in and out of their posts, but it happens in the head and the heart. And when we think about TFA core members moving on to some of them do decide to remain in teaching and so other classroom roles, but those who do move on to enact education policy who work in state legislatures, who run school districts, who manage schools, who are school leaders, and the extent to which they hold 
that framing of teaching as something that is very narrow and technical and data-driven shapes not only how they understand what teaching and learning can and should be, but it has a ripple effect and it, it impacts how not only we think about our work as teachers, but how other people and how the public continue to think about, speak about, and what they believe to be part of, part of our work. We're taping this on Zoom, and I, I wish you could see uh, Barb and Jameson nodding as as Angie's talking. I think maybe at some point in the future, we'll you know now that technology is advancing, we might do this podcast in a, in a visual format. And I know a lot of podcasts are visual, so so look for that in in, in some future episodes. Um, I wanted to ask Angie. Angie, did any of them when they spoke with you? And I I know that you that you wrote in your piece that. You had some challenges recruiting TFA people to, to alums to speak with you. Did any of them have emotional, like long-term emotional concerns regarding guilt? Decker Walker talks about developing an educational platform, and that educational platform is what you really believe in. And many of the TFA core members, they don't really know that. And then they come in and they're believing the Teach for America platform. That we're here, we're making a difference, we're doing good work, we're raising test scores. Um, If we're not here, who would be? But then after time, they start to realize that there's maybe discrepancies in that. So I was wondering if they had that to share. I think that those who left teaching immediately after or after TFA or were released from TFA had not necessarily guilt, but it was hard for them not to see themselves as having failed because these were participants who wanted to remain in teaching. And one of them after her first year said, I want to teach forever. And it was, it was a blow to her that what she had learned in her preparation was not working. And, you know, I, my other participant who had been released, I remember him talking to me about how he went back home, but didn't really know what he wanted to do. And just sort of this feeling of, of being lost. And I think that's what is so damaging about the neoliberal narrative is by framing teachers or workers or people as, as disposable that takes out the, the human and it, it dehumanizes teachers and it helps organizations like TFA make the case for not needing a rationale for teaching decisions or for, for practice, but to just go through the motions and adopt this framework. And this is what good teaching means and to take yourself out of that. Although it wasn't guilt, it was, they all experienced sadness, a sense of loss. Which I think for me, that's my key takeaway here is the immense amount of uh, collateral damage that TFA causes, right? And we've done plenty of episodes talking about and exploring the damage that TFA does to classrooms, to students, to the teachers in that building and to the community uh, that those schools serve. But even in Angie's participants, these were individuals, right? And you can have a long conversation on, you know, how they conceived that entering teaching uh, through this fast entry thing was prestigious and, and how they might have come to that decision. But 
even using the language of social justice to effectively attract these individuals into teaching who wanted to remain teachers long term. But because of TFA's approach, the collateral damage is, is that it is even ruining it for those teachers. And so you you have TFA core members who enter to just do their two years leave to go off to law school, whatever it might be. But even these core members who are coming in with the hopes of teaching long-term, they're leaving because of TFA's approach. And the only thing that is left is TFA, you know, is left with half a billion dollars in finder's fees because of that exchange on the marketplace uh, and effectively a bait and switch on social justice uh, to make money. Well, I want to thank you, Angie, for your work and for your participants' courage. I think that we need other perspectives to come forward. And when you created the table in your work and you gave us some background in into the, the personhood of your uh, subjects, it really mattered to readers. Um, I do think that we're seeing the commodification of core members And we're also seeing the pressure for them to, if they enter a prestige organization, that you showed us also that when they exit, there's a certain um, cultural component of exiting Teach for America with your head held high and um, not overstaying your duty in a school, which is really problematic for all the children and the families and communities that rely on uh, the educational consistency that comes from qualified veteran teachers. 